Welcome to Scraps, a podcast where we explore the untold, underappreciated, and sometimes unknown stories behind the science and innovation as told by the very people who brought these discoveries to life. I'm Jojo Platt. I'm joined by Arun Sridhar. And before we get started today, I want to ensure that all of you listeners make a visit to our website where you can do two things. First, take a look at our blogs that we put up with each episode. It gives you even more behind-the-scenes info and uh, added resources that you can dig into. So please take a look, and there's no better way to appreciate the guests who came on our show than to explore the resources that we've posted on them. That includes their bio, some of their technical work, and the second thing that you can do is uh, sign up for our mailing list, and this way you won't miss any episodes. You'll always know when something good is happening, which is always and we won't use your emails for any other purpose than sharing with you our exciting news. Finally, share the joy of listening by recommending our show to new audiences and by getting in touch with us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Let us know if you love it or hate it, how we can improve, and what topics you'd like us to cover. It's a lot of work to get these shows going, and the continued support from all of you is the biggest encouragement we can get. The brain is a complex and a robust network of cells that mediates our everyday functions from sensations and movements to consciousness and learning. In certain circumstances, the brain enters deviant states that can lead to debilitating or even life-threatening conditions. If you thought I wrote these words, the answer is not. Uh, These were the words that was written by our guest in his most recent publication. It is a publication that outlined how such debilitating conditions can be rewired to homeostasis, a state of normalcy for the patients. This paper that I recently saw was transformational for two reasons. One, because the paper outlined for the first time a bimodal manner in which one can alter the brain circuitry to treat a disease which has no existing treatments. And second of all, for the study design that they employed in in performing the clinical study. Usually in the field of bioelectronic medicines or neuromodulation, the investigators used to get a lot of stick for not running a good randomized controlled trial. This paper, I think, has changed that uh, and has changed the paradigm in one among the many that has recently come about in employing innovative trial designs and has employed a fantastic kind of outcome to go with the trial design as well. I got introduced to the guest when I reached out to him two years ago after seeing his paper on the use of ultrasound to treat inflammatory conditions. But what has followed since is a good conversation and more importantly, a frank exchange of topics between us whenever we have spoken. Without further ado, here is the man who has made its made it his life's focus to engineer new therapies for a chronic condition, and in his case, chronic conditions, that at least some person in our families would have at least experienced. That traditional ringing in the ears called as tinnitus. Believe it or not, it's a major problem that affects quality of life in about 10 to 15% of human population on the earth. 
He is here to talk about the study, the science, what led to the clinical study. And please welcome to Scraps, Dr. Hubert Lim. Hubert is an Associate Professor of Biomedical Engineering and Otolaryngology at the University of Minnesota and also holds an ownership stake in the company that was created from his work, uh, Neuromod Devices for the Treatment of Tinnitus. Welcome to the show, Hubert. Thank you, Arun. Thank you, Jojo. This is really exciting to be here, and uh, that was an amazing introduction. So I think we're done here. <laughs> I guess that's it. Well, I still have a little gr- kind of um, gripe to pick with you. You still are, you did a lot of your graduate career um, in the state of North, which I shall not mention the name uh, because of me being a Buckeye alum. And just for that reason, I think we should end the end the podcast right here. <laughs> Are you guys going to make me referee? I, I, I'm, I'm not up for that. It's too early. You, you might have to because I have to say I went to Michigan um, after they had their championship year. Uh, so it was all downhill from there. And Ohio State would always, always beat us <laughs> most of the times. So it, I can't say anything much about that. Arun wins. <laughs> All right. Now let's just leave the animosity and bantering in sports aside, uh, because I think I think I think we've got already got that out out in the open for now. Um, but moving on, uh, tell us a bit more about how you got into the field of biomedical engineering. And what was really interesting to me was the fact that. You, after your bachelor's, you did not just, normally people would just do one master's degree, but in your case, it looks like you did not stop at one, and then you went on to go and get a PhD um, as well. So tell us about your journey, Hubert, to ultimately um, kind of finishing up your PhD and and what led to the industry here. Sure. Uh, And that's actually a good few things you brought up there. Um, So I went to UC San Diego for my undergraduate degree in bioengineering. And uh, the reason why I got interested in the topic, uh, my brother has diabetes, type 1 diabetes, and I was quite interested in developing um, an implantable glucose sensor. And there's a professor there, uh, Dr. David Goff, who, who works on that topic. And so I, I actually went to UC San Diego and, and uh, tried to think about working with him there. Uh, but when I got there, uh, there were just so many cool topics to work on. Uh, and you know, I, I don't know if you know UC San Diego's program, but they are uh, heavily focused on uh, biomechanics. And so for my undergraduate, uh, I did quite a bit explore that realm. Um, but, you know, when you're going to school in college, there's just so many exciting topics. And one thing that always comes up is how the brain works. And at the time, uh, there are different companies like Napster, um, you know, trying to figure out music preferences or well, getting music, but then also music preferences. Um, and then there were these amazing studies coming out where people were interfacing with the brain. So I, I started to get interested in uh, wondering if I could make a brain interface device uh, uh, that could track and determine preferences uh, for music. Uh, and so that's where I decided after my undergrad that I wanted to pursue that topic. Uh, and then I just applied to top neural engineering programs where they're doing cool work uh, in this space. Uh, Michigan, of course. Uh, is one of them. They had um, Dr. Ken Weiss and Dr. David Anderson uh, who were developing these uh, Michigan probes. Uh, I also knew of uh, Dr. Jack Judy at the time. He had a neuroengineering program at at UCLA. 
Uh, and so, you know, these are two schools that I was highly interested in. I applied thinking that if I go to grad school, I would eventually make these brain implants that everybody would have one, <laughs> you know, it, it just no big deal. Five years and night, the naive mentality of an undergrad. Um, and it, actually interesting story. I, I applied and I got into both programs. Uh, Jack Judy, I don't know if he remembers this, but he actually called me, um, uh, because he, they accepted my application and he called me, left a voice message. And uh, I, I got home and I picked it up and it said, hi, this is Dr. Jack Judy. We're interested in bringing you to UCLA and bring you for like their, their interview, their recruit weekend. And I thought I was so cool, like this, you know, famous neuroengineer. They got this neuroengineering program. Uh, and so I, I actually went to visit there and Michigan were the two top schools uh, that I was quite interested in. But anyhow, that, that was kind of my I didn't end up going there and I eventually told him that, <laughs> you know, he, he did inspire me, but I ended up going to Michigan to pursue really this uh, uh, brain machine interface for music preference. So that was kind of my initial start into this field. So y you end up at Michigan and you have quite a cadre of contemporaries there with you. I mean, people who are, who are other one name names in the field, um, who are some of your, your roommates, lab partners, drinking buddies at Michigan. Yeah. So that that's the amazing thing is that time. Uh, oh my goodness. We had so many amazing people there, right? I mean, Kip Ludwig, uh, Nick Lankhouse, uh, Justin Williams, Kevin Otto, Rio Vetter. Uh, I mean, the list just goes on and on. And uh, I got there in 2000. Uh, my, as I mentioned, original intention was to do brain with machine interfacing for uh, music preference um, you know, and Darryl, Dr. Daryl Kipke was at Michigan in the past where he did his uh, graduate work, went to Arizona, and he ended up coming back in 2002. So a lot of uh, energy built around him there at that time. Um, so, but during 2000 to 2002, um, I was exploring this whole concept of brain machine interfacing for music preference. And that's where I um, got, you know, exposed to cochlear implant research. And Although I thought, you know, brain machine interfacing for music preference would be super cool and even called it at the time, actually, my, my name was Hugh at the time, and I had something called the Hugh helmet, which you can ask people about. They just go, oh, Hugh, we're talking about the Hugh helmet again. <laughs> you see, that, that was the whole, you know, thought behind that. But uh, I saw cochlear implant surgery. I so this wasn't like a helmet that was converted into a frat bowl or something. Is that right? Have two beer, two beer cans on either side with two straws. That also was included in it, uh, and you know could record your brain signals and determine your preferences and also what uh, things you would find pleasurable. So that that was the idea behind it. So hip hop, like <laughs> it's feature creep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Go on. You're you're starting to tell us what what drove your your first foray into tinnitus. Yeah, so that that um, led me into interest into cochlear implant research, uh, where I, I got to interact with researchers and uh, patients who have cochlear implants. And I, I just thought that that was amazing. These individuals are completely deaf. Uh, they get this device and, you know, not for all, but many of them within a short period of time can develop, uh, you know, speech perception, at least in quiet environments. Uh, and so I, I was sold. I, I thought, you know, my Hugh helmet can wait a little bit. Uh, and I, I really wanted to pursue cochlear implant auditory prosthetics. It was just an amazing um, uh, achievement, and I wanted to improve it. Uh, with that said, though, you know, there's just too many smart people in that field, 
And they had done so much in the last, you know, 10, 20 years since I had got into it. Uh, I, I was concerned that there, you know, the amount of things that could be done on a kind of the next big step w- would take really something monumental. Uh, and so I started to talk with Dave. Oh, by the way, Dave Anderson uh, is who I decided to work with, uh, who was the director of the Center for Neural Technology Communication, CNCT, um, at the time. And so I worked with him and we chatted about this and, and he was super supportive and encouraging. That's what I loved about him. It was kind of like, laid back and, you know, you tell me what you want to go for and I'll provide the money. And so it, it was just, it was a great opportunity. And I uh, chatted with him and I decided, you know, I, I still want to do brain machine interface. I want to go into the brain. Uh, can we push the cochlear implant field in a different direction where we go straight to the brain, right? And uh, that first avenue was actually to implant into the nerve uh, as an auditory nerve implant. Um, and I worked with uh, some great people. I don't know if uh, maybe, maybe, yes, I don't know if you know Dr. Stephen Beer. Uh, he he uh, was working uh, in that lab at the time, and he had done some auditory nerve implant work. Uh, a, a clinician, ENT clinician, ear, nose, throat, Dr. Alex Arts uh, was one of the drivers there. So that, that was where I started. And then, you know, I, th- things were challenging, but then I got even more uh, ambitious and thought that I could go uh, into the brain and actually, uh, you know, s- stimulate uh, directly in the brain with, you know, a high channel count device to restore more natural hearing. And so it ended up being that I, I went that route to do an auditory midbrain implant for my PhD. And, and of course, he never told me this was a crazy idea. Uh, I told him that we would be impatient in a few years and he nodded his head and, and was supportive. Uh, which was crazy, though, because two years later, I collected a lot of animal data for it and ran into a surgeon, a top-notch ear, nose, throat surgeon in Germany, Dr. Thomas Lennartz. And he has, at the time, one of the largest, if not the largest, hearing center with cochlear implants and auditory implants. And uh, I didn't know this, but they were working in parallel uh, on the clinical translation side. They had worked with Cochlear Limited, which is the largest cochlear implant company. And um, they had already developed a prototype human device. Uh, we're trying to do some scientific studies. Uh, fortunately, I had done a lot of those to show the potential of stimulating the inferior colleagues and recording in the auditory cortex. Uh, and uh, so then we decided, let's team up together. I mean, I've brought in this much to it. They brought in the other side of it. Uh, and so, I mean, my joke before about a few years, it actually happened where I ended up moving to Germany for my postdoc in 2006. Um, and even before then, we were working together and how serious they were. I, I, you know, Thomas Leonard said, I'm sending my wife there and she's going to live in Michigan and work with you. So that's how it was kind of like back in the day of the kingdoms, right? You know, you kind of say, I'm going to give you my family member here and to show how much, you know, collaboration and, and it worked wonderful. His oh, his wife passed away, unfortunately, but, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Manu Leonard's, you know, I, I, we grew a, uh, great partnership. And uh, she was at Michigan during my PhD. We collected a lot of preclinical data. Uh, I was going back and forth to Hanover, Germany, and we had collected uh, safety data. And, uh, uh, you know, long story short there, we ended up starting the clinical trial in uh, mid-2006 uh, uh, to implant the first patients there. So that was more of my auditory prosthetic life. Um, but this is where it got into tinnitus. Uh, basically, we... Uh, implanted, uh, we're planning was five patients and, uh, several of them, it worked well. 
um, not as much as we had hoped for restoring hearing, uh, but you know the safety profile proved to be quite so good. So this is actually implantation in the brain that you're in talking about. Yeah, exactly yeah. in the brain. Uh, putting uh, and and this device is at the time was uh, leading edge, right? Because it had 20 electrode contacts on it. It was 20 times smaller in volume uh, compared to the Medtronic Deep Brain Stimulation Array, uh, and we managed to do that in a short period of time because we took uh, cochlear limited uh, cochlear's uh, cochlear implant. Uh, technology miniaturized it with very minimal steps uh, and straightened it out, putting a, a metal a stainless steel stylet down the middle of it to hold its uh, shape while it was inserted. And then that stylet or the middle central piece was pulled out. And then you had this soft uh, a silicone um, uh, with platinum iridium electrodes, you know, floating in the midbrain. So it, it was a, just a beautiful partnership where multiple sides came together and we were able to get it done in a short period of time. And of course, Dr. Thomas Leonard's, his connections and, uh, uh, wonderful partnerships with these cochlear implant companies. But yeah, that, that device then went into five patients, uh, deep brain stimulation, you know, and surgery. Uh, we worked with Dr. Mir Sami and Dr. Majid Sami who have, a very famous uh, international neuroscience uh, institute in Hanover, uh, and they have done you know thousands of uh, acoustic neuroma surgeries um, in the brainstem region, and so you know to justify the benefit to risk, uh, we selected individuals who already have to go in for surgery to remove tumors uh, at the nerve level, and uh, as a result, they become deaf, which, which you know which is quite you know sad that they have to go through that. Um, but there's no, they become deaf then and there's no option, there's limited options for them. So the idea was that we could uh, provide this hearing implant uh, into the midbrain and provide them at least some hearing sensations uh, with minimal surgical risk because they've already had to do the open head surgery for the tumor removal. And so that's where we were able to implant five patients. Um, and, you know, obviously the hearing results were encouraging uh, such that, you know, I'll get to that later if you want. We were able to get an NIH grant to, you know, continue a two shank version of the device in a study that we just ran um, recently and finished uh, uh, this past few months ago. Um, but going to now the, the tinnitus story, how that all happened uh, was really just by accident for me uh, in, in how I got into tinnitus. Uh, we, uh, you know, f- expected to put the electrodes into this midbrain region called inferior colliculus. And uh, what happened was that uh, in uh, two of the patients we got in good position there. One especially, uh, the three other patients. You know, it's challenging. We had to do kind of more um, a manual insertion process, uh, and so three of the electrode arrays uh, did not go optimally into our target auditory region. And uh, those three individuals had quite a bit of uh, uh, somatosensory sensations when we stimulated uh, many of their sites, like paresthesia. Uh, uh, tactile sensations along the body uh, and even in the face and the tongue region. Um, and so I did not expect this, but since tinnitus is linked to hearing loss, you know, several of these patients had tinnitus. Um, and two of them, when we actually stimulated these non-auditory electrode sites, uh, especially one of the patients said, oh, my tinnitus turned off, right? While they're feeling the body sensations. And that just to me was, it was like, what? <laughs> you know, like, how did that happen? So which areas were you stimulating just so that we can draw a connection to your tinnitus work uh, now? So with, is there a connection between which sites that you were stimulating when you, when you spoke of the non-auditory sites that you were stimulating yeah. and the tinnitus went away? 
Yeah, those sites were implanted. Uh, so if you look at the inferior colliculus, that's the auditory portion of the midbrain. Uh, and uh, in the central region is where you want to stimulate. That's the auditory portion. And then the outer shell of that inferior colliculus uh, is a multimodal region, right? So it processes auditory, visual, somatosensory, um, motor uh, interactions. And so when we stimulated that region, it wasn't surprising uh, per se that we would get these paresthesia or this tactile stem. Uh, uh, for me, when we stimulated the surprising part was that we could um, shut down the tinnitus percept. Uh, and so I, although I was disappointed that we didn't get more auditory sites, this then really got me interested in saying, hey, I, I'm getting these new ideas of how we might be able to uh, tackle tinnitus, right? So that that's kind of the entry into tinnitus for me. And I've talked a lot now, so maybe I pause and let you ask me some questions there while I drink some water. I, I want to go back just a little bit into, I mean, you, you do all this work in your, your PhD and your postdoc, and you have this, um, a mentor who, who, who nods politely when you say we're going to be in humans in a few years and, and just goes, okay, kid, you know, we'll, we'll show you how life really works when we get there. And instead you actually do that. So has, I mean, that's unusual. And has that, um, has that colored your experience since then? Have you, or have you continued to have that golden touch? Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I, I really appreciate Dr. David Anderson. And I, you know, that was also Derek Kipke's uh, advisor and he's, he's, you know, advised uh, many people. Um, he, he's just a very kind person who's very supportive. And I don't know, <laughs> you probably thought I was crazy or idiotic many times, the things I probably brought up and said, you know, Dave, I'm going to do this, Dave, I'm going to do that. Uh, but he never really, there was not a single time he ever told me, uh, you know, that's a dumb idea or, or don't go down that pathway. He would always just give his acknowledgement and appreciation for the ideas. And then, uh, you know, he'd say, what's, you know, resources do you need? And, and part of it was nice because he did have the capability to provide those resources. Um, and that has definitely, um, you know, influenced how I deal with my students as well. And if you ever talk to my students, I'm very open-minded. You know, if they've got ideas, I'm like, yeah, let, let's think about that more. Like, how can we push that along? Um, and I, I'm not that rich in my lab, but we find ways to uh, get funding and, and, and support it. And if, if we have, you know, I tell my lab members, you know, we've got money now. I'll spend it. If we go poor, we'll go poor together and we'll figure it out later. But there's no point in hoarding the money. Let's really go after these big ideas. And, you know, that, that's what research is supposed to be about, right? I mean, why are we in academia if that's not what we're going to be doing? Um, but he, he has had that really strong influence uh, over me. And, you know, going back to your comment about the people there, we just had, you know, Daryl Kipke had a huge lab. Uh, he had a lot of people at the time. And there was a group, you know, a large group of neural folks there as well. So we were able to just brainstorm and think about just extreme crazy ideas. And Daryl was also like that. You know, maybe he, he got influenced through Dave Anderson in that way too. Uh, but he was open-minded and really kind of really outside of the box thinking. So we're all just there just thinking <laughs> these really, you know, intense, you know, creative ideas. And, and it was a, a good influence for me and in how I, you know, moved forward in my academic career as a mentor uh, and running a lab. Well, just, just to chime in here for a quick second, because I know Arun will lead off with something more technical, but on Rate My Professor, you actually have an excellent rating, and one of the top comments you get is that you're hilarious. So I'm going to add that supportive. But it, yeah, 
apparently your your exams are pretty pretty beastly. Yeah, uh, I, I make sure I give them a tough exam. Lots of uh, lots of hard questions, but grade on a really good curve. So that that that's the way I work. But you know, I I'm pretty interactive. I used to have an open door policy, and I realized why my faculty colleagues don't do that because I had people in my office all the time for a while to the point where, you know, I, I had to kind of make some uh, rules or, around that. But I, I do enjoy um, keeping an open dialogue with my students and my people in my lab. Uh, you know, that, that's what makes this job really fun. I mean, there's just so many parts of it that are excruciating, you know, getting grants, uh, publications, uh, and uh, other, um, in, uh, you know, requirements. But that that's the fun part of it all. I'm going to detach my phone here because I think it might start to ring too much. That, that's Kip Ludwig. He's, he's pranking you. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so uh, it, it is very interesting, um, Hubert, that your work on stimulating the, the non-auditory regions of the midbrain that encodes for multimodal kind of sensory inputs um, there um, in the inferior colliculus actually led you to the hypothesis that there could be something in there for treating tinnitus. And that was a, uh, that's an excellent kind of path to generate a hypothesis. I think what was incredibly interesting to me uh, scientifically was how you went about proving uh, from going from an idea and a hypothesis to actually proving that in the preclinical setting. And I think that's an excellent lesson for some of the people who would listen to it because normally whenever people talk about brain stimulation, uh, people still kind of talk about it being a black box, it, people not really understanding the circuitry and and kind of empirically thinking that it would normalize something and correlating that to either a neural biomarker or, or some of the connections, et cetera, that people are still trying to figure out. But the way you actually demonstrated the the results for the hypothesis uh, was incredibly, um, it, I found it very stimulating. And as I said, we'll include those resources, those papers in the show notes as well. But do you want to tell us a bit more about how you, how that journey looked like or what that journey looked like? Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks for the kind words. Uh, it's, it's always nice to hear them. <laughs> so thank you. <clears throat> you, you know, I'll step back a little bit, kind of my, my philosophy of science has changed dramatically over, over this like 20 year period. Um, you know, I did my PhD with Dave Anderson and I was surrounded by many strong uh, neuroscientists, auditory neuroscientists. And, you know, in the auditory field, like the visual field, um, you know, there you really need to, you know, justify and demonstrate the rigor of your of your science and experiments. Um, they will come after you. And they will criticize and shoot you down. Um, so I was in that world, and it was really about hypotheses. And and actually, what you said is true. And and but I have kind of more of a loose way now of the hypotheses. Um, you know, hypotheses are good if you have enough information. For example, in the brain field, you have enough information about the brain and how the brain really works. In the normal brain, we still struggle. In the disease brain, I mean, oh, oh my goodness, like how do you even understand what's going on there? And a lot of it is because we have to do research in animals and we have to do computational models and in vitro and we have to then jump 
make that big jump to the limited data we have in humans or non-invasive and try to make sense of it and then create hypotheses around that. Now, I'm not against that. Uh, and that's what I did, you know, for my PhD work uh, to kind of lead up to an auditory midbrain implant, right, to justify that. And then again, to the tinnitus work that you mentioned up to 2015 and 16, um, uh, you know, to justify that. Uh, but the challenge with invasive work is that I would make hypotheses and then try to develop the technologies uh, and prove it in animals and then go to humans after, you know, fortunately it was short periods, but, you know, it could take five, 10 years to get to human studies only to find out that I was 90% wrong, <laughs> 10% kind of right. And then you go back through the process again, and then you try to do, you know, move that pathway. So when I came to Minnesota in 2009, I, I actually told myself, look, um, I still love invasive work and I'm going to do invasive work. Uh, but uh, I feel like the, the slowness of clinical translation, right? Th there's that bottleneck of what I was describing, right? Because there's just, if someone told you to figure out how to do an auditory midbrain implant or a tinnitus treatment, but I'm only going to give you five mice to figure it out, you'd be, well, you know, how are you going to ever do that? Um, and so I decided that half my lab will be invasive. The other half, I really want to push non-invasive tools. I need to find a way to probe the human brain, the human body, and really collect an enormous amount of human data in healthy subjects, but also in people with health conditions to make more sense and really do the translational you know, research to bridge the gap. Um, and then with my invasive work, I would have access to invasive recordings and so forth, and I'd be able to kind of bring that back and forth. So for my invasive work, uh, if you see some of the publications, you know, we've always stayed quite hypothesis driven because you need to, you need to justify it to get it to humans and so forth. If you look at my non-invasive, there are hypotheses, but there's also a lot of trial and error approach because I accept that I probably don't know that much about the brain. Maybe the, the society also doesn't know as much as we think we do. And I want to do things in animals that are open-ended to explore, right? And be open-minded about what I will discover. Uh, and then uh, in humans, if I can do things that are minimally or low risk, and that's why I looked into ultrasound, that's why I looked into magnetic fields, electrical fields, and a lot of these kind of non-invasive approaches, then I can go to humans very quickly, which if you look at my lab, we've done it four or five times where we've done things in two to three years in animals and then quickly go to humans, come back to animals and then go back to humans. And we're doing this for the ultrasound. We're doing it for electrical stim. Uh, and then push in that way to then start to figure out, you know, what we can better design for the actual clinical product and then work with companies um, as soon as possible with their technologies that may be FDA approved or not or, or already uh, versus the ones that are not. And then kind of move things quickly along. So that, that I, I just want to kind of give a backdrop, you know, on on how like my hypothesis driven mentality has kind of molded through the, the struggles of going through this translational process and and as a result this combination has worked very well i mean i might have been got, i might have gotten lucky uh for the applications i went for uh but i've managed to then you know kind of move quickly through the translational process in this way and maybe i'll pause there for a second <laughs> luck is really just a, a a a side effect of hard work and focus so i i'm not sure that i would call it lucky i think it's a it's um it's a great way to sort of shortcut some of the things that are standing in our way with the non-invasive 
um, technologies being less specific, less focused, um, less rich in data, but it can still give you some guidance so that you can shortcut the invasive work. I think there's no reason people shouldn't be leveraging that method more often. Exactly. And and that's where, for me, it's been nice because, you know, I can now, you know, ask hypotheses directly in humans, right? And we're doing that with electrical stimulation of the body, of ultrasound stimulation. And even for the tinnitus work, um, you know, people always ask, like, how – how do you do tinnitus animals? You know, how do you ask the animals that they have tinnitus? And there are some creative ways, behavioral ways you could train them to listen to sounds uh, and press a lever. And then when you give them tinnitus by, for example, ototoxic drugs or uh, uh, deafening procedures, noise, loud noise deafening procedures, you can get them to um, press the lever when you're not presenting any sound as if they're hearing some kind of sound. Uh, and you can also do a start or reflex method where, you know, you place them on a, a force pad and uh, normally when you play a loud sound they'll startle animals will startle and humans also but if you play a soft sound right before that loud sound um it'll it's something called pre-pulse inhibition it it dampens the the startle to that loud loud sound and you can kind of if you're creative enough you can align that with the tinnitus where the tinnitus masks that soft sound that precedes that loud sound and so as a result, you don't see as much of this pre-pulse inhibition if they have tinnitus, right? So there's it's some, comp, you know, complexities there. But, you know, there are models. But the thing is then, you know, is a tinnitus animal model, like, uh, reflecting what happens in human individuals, right? Um, and the diversity that you see of tinnitus, it's not just one condition. It's it's a diverse condition. Um, you know, are, are we really capturing it? So you do all this work in animals, um, and I, I, I was trying to do that for invasive implant for tinnitus treatment, doing a cortical implant or a midbrain implant for tinnitus. And you'll see some publications where we went that route for hypothesis-driven research. Um, but if you're able to get a non-invasive technology and move to humans, then we can move towards large-scale studies, do subtyping analysis in that large population, and try different stimulation strategies which is, you know, we could talk about later, but that's what I ended up getting the opportunity to do with Neuromod devices, which is what's so exciting about it. And and that's where, you know, it led me uh, in this way. No, and, and it's actually a fantastic kind of bringing together of various things about, about using electrical stimulation and sound to actually treat an auditory problem, which I think in, in itself it's 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 almost a bit like uh it, it it's a bit of a paradox right because you're you're actually using the combination to actually treat a ringing of the ears um so coming back to the the study uh moving on from the hypothesis that you actually tested what makes the the current study that you did you basically used a combination of stimulation electrical stimulation delivered to the tongue um, with an electrode that is placed on the tongue in patients. And at the same time, they also had uh, an auditory stimulus that they could actually listen through uh, through a headphones, I assume. Um, and it was the combination of how you delivered the, the sound uh, through the headphones and the tongue stimulation that ultimately determined if the patients actually responded to the treatment or not. Um, and the fantastic thing, again, we'll post the paper as a resource. I think ju- just to just to cut to the chase, because we want to hear you narrate the the experience of how you got to it. But really, 
around 84% of the patients actually stayed compliant, which is a pretty significant amount. And you actually saw a pretty similar number in terms of, of efficacy in, in patients as well. So those are pretty startling numbers for a patient group that actually did not have any other treatment options beyond just cognitive behavioral therapy uh, prior to this. Uh, so tell us a bit more about how this combination of electrical and, and, and sound stimulation works to rewire the brain. Hubert, do we know anything about it? Yeah. And, and so, the, you know, obviously I, I, I'll give credit to, you know, 30, 40 years, actually a hundred years of research, right? Um, the whole concept of using tongue stimulation or uh, some reinforcer, right? It doesn't have to be tongue stimulation. It could be body stimulation, you know, of the ear or the neck or the foot even, um, or even visual stimuli, and you combine it with sound stimulation. Uh, the idea there is that you could change things in the brain, right, by using two inputs at the same time. And that concept of paired stimulation, you know, dates back you know, even before, but, you know, if you think of Pavlonian conditioning with the Pavlonian dog, uh, you'll have the dog who, you know, will, will see food and salivate, but then you may just ring a bell randomly and the dog could care less about that bell. You then pair the bell with the food every time. And then there's this association that's, you know, happening. People might say that's a psychological or, you know, a mental thing. Um, but either way, when you ring the bell without the food, then the dog salivates, right? And then Dr. Heb, you know, Heb and plasticity and other, other researchers, you know, they find found that there's actual neural mechanisms that are happening where when you kind of pair inputs, converging inputs into, into neurons and uh, brain cells, um, they do change their firing capabilities, uh, increasing gain or lowering gain, right, uh, of their firing patterns uh, to that convergent input. And so fast forward to the audit, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s, uh, 1970s and 80s, in the auditory field, people were doing really cool experiments where they would, uh, you know, electrically stimulate the foot or the body, and they would play a pure tone. Uh, for example, they would play one kilohertz. And you could actually record in the auditory system, as with other systems, sensory systems, there's a topographic organization, right, of the these elementary features like frequency. So in the auditory system, you'll have something like a frequency map of low to high frequencies coded uh, in an auditory structure called a tonotopic map. Um, and so that means some cells are sensitive to one kilohertz, but they're not as sensitive to eight kilohertz. Other cells are sensitive to 10 kilohertz, but they may not be sensitive to 500 hertz. So there is this sensitivity. And what they showed, which is really cool, was that they could pair this body stimulation or foot shock, right, with this one kilohertz tone, and they could cause the animal's brain, the auditory cells, to all start to become, or many of them start to become more sensitive to that one kilohertz. And so they're changing their tuning properties for frequencies. And you could do it even with just a few presentations, right? That's how powerful, potent this paired paradigm is. Uh, and, you know, there, there was really uh, uh, some cool research done. Uh, as you know, Dr. Michael Kilgard, uh, they had been doing vagus nerve stimulation. Uh, they had this seminal paper in Nature where they showed you could reorganize the auditory cortex by doing vagus nerve stim and pure tone stimulation. And, you know, this is all a lot of seminal work that came out of Dr. Michael Mersnick's group and, you know, many researchers in this realm. Uh, so then when you think about that, it tells you that you can change the coding properties 
of auditory cells, right? So the hypothesis here, which, you know, I'm grounded in the hypothesis when it comes to the brain science, um, the hypothesis here is there that we hypothesize that we should be able to use different frequency features and pair it with something to shift the way cells are coding, right, in the auditory pathway. Now, why that's important is because if you think tinnitus is an abnormal coding of a subset of cells, right, that are driving this phantom percept, then the hypothesis would be that, you know, if those cells are upregulated, hyperactive, let's say, or downregulated, right, you should be able to, in theory, stimulate some frequency components that could interact with those cells, pair it with something and turn up or down, you know, those tinnitus cells, right? So that, that, that's kind of the, the concept behind that. Now, the question is, how do you find those tinnitus cells? How do you access those tinnitus cells? Uh, and how do you then, what's the best way to drive them up or down in the and brain? Why stimulation of the tongue? That was the part that I, I quite don't get it. Like, I understand the whole earphones thing and I understand yeah. the frequency that you're explaining, but why specifically stimulation of a tongue just because it's part that where people would actually be comfortable with sticking something in their mouth for for some time and and therefore it seemed like the lowest path or the path of least resistance or is there a well, actually the path of least resistance is literally true too it was the path of least resistance because it has the conductive fluids um well i was not thinking the tongue would be the the you know proper region and full transparency is that the Neuromod company I was with is was actually previously a competitor of mine. Um, I was planning to do a startup company, and I thought maybe electrical ear stimulation would be the better route with sound. Um, and uh, they were doing tongue stimulation. I always thought, you know, tongue. I mean, they don't know what they're talking about, right? So that was kind of what, what had happened. But when I did my this, the trial and error po- approach part came where. Paired stimulation, we know we need to tackle those tinnitus neurons, right? Um, the trial and error approach was, I don't know what is the best feature, and I can't make a good hypothesis as to what would be the good you know, body location to stimulate. So that's where in 2010-ish, uh, we basically came up with this protocol where we're just going to stimulate every body region. We're going to stimulate different sounds and try lots of different delays. And we actually termed this concept called multimodal synchronization therapy. The, the idea behind it was that, you know, you actually incorporate not just body stim and sound, but visual and other inputs. And if you get the delays right and the pathways right, you can, in essence, beamform, neural beamform into any brain region you'd want. That must be one hell of, a, of an optimization exercise. Oh, geez, it, it was. That's why the paper wasn't published until 2015. <laughs> it took a very long time. And even then, we still have several papers we're working on that, that uh, came from that. But the, that one paper we published in 2015, what we ended up showing was that two, brain, two body regions um, showed what I thought was the more convincing changes in the brain that I thought could be relevant for tinnitus. And it was electrical stimulation of the ear was one of them and tongue stimulation. So in that paper, um, you know, I, I didn't want to put it, but it was the data. So we had a paragraph in there uh, that basically said that, you know, tongue stimulation is an important pathway to stimulate with sound. And that actually got the attention of Neuromod devices. So Neuromod devices was already a company out since 2010. And um, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, Dr. Ross O'Neill, he did his PhD on tongue stimulation uh, for sensory substitution for um, uh, kind of uh, the auditory pathway. But 
they had they got a hold of my paper and someone in the company said, look, this person just said that tongue stimulation <laughs> and sound is the way to go for tinnitus treatment. Uh, and that just triggered, you know, a whole cascade of events where uh, people got us together and connected. And Ross O'Neill, uh, that, that's how it ended up happening. But that's how tongue came about for me as being a region. Uh, it was a trial and error approach. And that was just one of the regions that happened to show. Um, it just coincidentally happened to be the pathway that Neuromod devices was already pursuing. Um, and and th- that was part of the motivation too. why I decided to uh, join forces with them because in my lab, I was doing electrical ear stimulation. I, I still am interested in that approach with sound because I think you can, you know, put put all these pieces together in one nice earpiece and then and, and enable that. So we're still pursuing that. Um, but the resources that Neuromod has to really push large scale studies really got me excited. So I have a, I have a quick question because you talked and from a non-technical point of view, I from my understanding of tinnitus, it's a ringing in the ears that is a maddening and probably a sound not unlike, even though it's a ringing, but not unlike nails on a chalkboard. You're talking about the the sound that you're creating and introducing with your your paired stimulation and sound in terms of hertz and kilohertz and all that. What does that actually sound like? What are the sounds that you found to be optimal? Are they is it something I could hear and would find pleasing, or is it is it the idea of sort of counteract a bad sound with a different bad sound? Yeah, so that's the complexity of tinnitus is that. Uh, there are so many different sounds that uh, individuals are experiencing. Uh, some will say it's like a sharp tone. And I, I have tinnitus in particular one of my ears. It's very soft um, and it's more of a noise-like sound. I, I really, it's hard to describe. Um, and then occasionally that, depending on my condition, it'll like peak, I'll have spikes and so forth. Uh, and that will be tonal. Um, so, and then some people say it's like cricket-like. Some people will say it's an oscillating tone-like some people say they have multiple tone sounds. Uh, some will say that it's a noise and tone mixed in. Um, some will say, you know, changes to the other side. Uh, it, it's quite uh, diverse in what people experience. Um, and majority, uh, especially when it first happens, um, of course, it's, it's quite stressful uh, and devastating because it can be quite loud uh, for many individuals. And, and, you know, some, it, it can be acute, it, it could occur and then, you know, fade away. Uh, but for many individuals, unfortunately, it, it does stick around. Um, and depending on the day, it, it could increase or decrease for some, or it could stay pretty steady for others. Um, and, and it is a lot like pain when you think about it. You know, you'll have pain, but many times a given day can actually feel much worse than another day. We, we, the, the problem here is we can't actually measure the loudness of the tinnitus. Uh, there's no objective measure, uh, just like pain. There's no objective measure for pain, um, and and so really we have to go based on how they're feeling, you know, over time uh, uh, with that with that tinnitus percept or that pain percept. So the voices in my head don't count as tinnitus. <laughs> I, I, I have, have a voice too. They might yeah. be the same voices, Jojo. <laughs> so you you oh, go ahead, Arun. Oh, I, I was just going to say, you and I have actually had the chance to be in touch quite a lot over the last couple of weeks because of some of the work that you're doing um, with Soundwave and your DARPA program. What Can you tell us what you're doing there and who's involved? Yeah, so that, that work, um, you know, it ended up, uh, so I, right now I'm working with many partners there. Um, 
and probably confuse everybody because everyone thinks we're all one big collaboration, but it's actually like three separate or four separate collaborations. Um, you know, I worked uh, with Medtronic on that on that project doing ultrasound. Um, that's actually where I got, uh, you know, my start into doing spleen stimulation with ultrasound for immune modulation. Um, I also uh, work with, um, you know, the company that I'm part of that helped co-found Second Wave Systems, where, you know, we're wearing wearable uh, phased array ultrasound devices. Uh, I also work with GE, with Chris Puglio and the team there. And there, you know, we use their systems to do ultrasound. And we, we have a, um, a work towards, you know, trying to look for COVID uh, uh, clinical trial treatment. Uh, and then, you know, I've worked with different partners, just cl- scientific collaborators looking to use ultrasound to modulate the brain and nervous system. Uh, and, you know, through that work, you know, my, my lab has branched out in multiple directions uh, w- with that topic. Sorry to break this up, guys. Just wanted to remind you to rate us on your podcast application. That's that's great to hear, Hubert. Thank you so much for actually giving us the breadth of, of what uh, the kind of work that you're doing there. Uh, so just coming back to the most recent publication that you had, which is the clinical trial. I think I, I did allude to earlier about the study design, which I think was was pretty rigorous, in my opinion, that you actually had from all of the various optimized parameters, you basically figured out that there is only three that you wanted to test in the in the first clinical trial here. Um, that was the patients were actually divided into around 326 patients were divided into three groups of approximately 105 to 107 patients in, in each group, three arms. And tell us a difference between what the difference between three arms, and then we'll go a bit more into the results, what you found. But just just give us a straw man version of what the difference in the three groups that you tested was so that people can actually appreciate why it's a specific pattern of retuning that, that, that matters and not necessarily anything that can be applied uh, with a combination of tongue stimulation and the sound stimulation. Yeah, and, and for a full, you know, disclaimer here or, or, or transparency is uh, talking about the mechanism and the hypotheses. Um, you know, obviously we don't know how tinnitus is, uh, and, and this is to lead into the stimulation strategies or patterns. Uh, we don't know um, exactly how tinnitus is coded in the brain. Uh, we do know that uh, hearing loss is a, a, a big, you know, driver or component of people who have tinnitus. And that, that, that idea is that, you know, that lack of input into the auditory system uh, then triggers a cascade of compensation. And then in some individuals, there's overcompensation and firing. You know, you might, it, you know, a simplified analogy would be to like phantom pain where individuals lose a, a limb and then that lack of input leads to this kind of pain of overactivity, right? Um, and so then there's two ways you could think about treating tinnitus. Uh, one is, as I was mentioning before, you find those tinnitus cells and you try to shut them off. Uh, that would be one way. Another way is to say, okay, finding those cells may be a bit challenging. Um, how about I make other cells, right, much more sensitive and more active, right, more like at the party having a good time and then drowns out like the person like me who talks too much at parties that would basically no one even cares because everything else is more exciting, right? And then... So you're not, relatively speaking, 
you're shutting me down, right? You're shutting those tinnitus down, tinnitus neurons down because there's more exciting things happening around, right? Um, so that latter approach is what I've been quite interested in. That, that's been the approach I've been pushing in my lab uh, and also at Neuromod Devices, this company that I'm part of, is let's just stimulate a diversity of stimuli, right? So do one kilohertz, do eight kilohertz, do four kilohertz, and you're pairing it. Now, ideally it'd be good if you didn't do the tinnitus sound, right? Because if this whole, the, the logic of that, but it's hard to know and match tinnitus sometimes, and many times actually for uh, tinnitus uh, individuals. So you do lots of different stimuli. And in essence, you should be making other neurons, right? Cells more active. The problem is, unlike a party where everything just gets louder and annoying, right? Because everybody's speaking over each other. You know, if you think about it, the brain cannot be hyperactive infinitely, right? I mean, that's a hypothesis, but we know that's true because it has mechanisms. Otherwise, you lead into seizures, right? I mean, that we've seen that happen where you electrically stimulate the cortex and you override its inhibitory surround mechanisms, you'll drive a seizure. So it has, we do know that there's some homeostatic, homeostasis, you know, mechanisms to kind of balance things out, right? So that, that kind of a, a stretch of the hypothesis is that if you make everything much more exciting elsewhere, in theory, the mechanisms will shut down the tinnitus neurons, right? Your homeostasis process. So that, that's kind of a, a loose hypothesis there. Um, so with that in mind, the idea is to create diversity and stimulate, right? That That's one aspect. The other is that there's, you know, the, the hypothesis about paired stimulation, right? Because you would think if you want to, you know, take advantage of Pavlonian conditioning or this paired concept, you know, two things more synchronized in time, right, would drive greater changes in the brain. Um, and that, that's another key feature. Now, we don't know what that timing is. I mean, if brain was really about zero millisecond precision, you know, 100 micro, microsecond precision, you know, it'd be kind of interesting because that means that things that happen in daily life, you know, why do we start to have our brain change and learn? Because there's always a delay. So we don't know what that delay is. But, you know, we want... It, we thought, you know, in the tens of milliseconds to hundreds of milliseconds range, but maybe it's more like five to 10 second range. We don't know what that timing really is. So that's the background of it. And going into the stimulation parameters, then hopefully that it'll make more sense. Now, you know, we had three different stimulation settings. And, um, you know, the idea was, at the time, you know, I wasn't actually uh, involved with the initial planning of that first sta stage of design. So I do want to mention that. Um, but the idea there is that there are so many parameters to test. And so the thought process behind it was that, okay, we do know that there's some synchrony things there. We do know that different frequencies and, and different sounds to my, my might affect things. We do know that order having some kind of systematic order to the stimulation should be important. So the first stimulation setting was basically you have tone that is paired synchronously, you know, with some jitter delay, depending on technology, um, with, so tone is paired synchronously with tongue stimulation. And that tone, because of this sensory mapping that Dr. Uh, Ross O'Neill had been involved with for his PhD, sensory substitution, um, there's a tone that is mapped to a given location um, on the tongue. Now, it's actually the paddle, uh, this electrode paddle that goes into your mouth to do electrical stimulation, and it has 32 electrodes. So depending on where they place, it's not going to be exact location on the tongue. But It but, almost looks like a tongue depressor that your, your family physician would use to check your th throat, right? Um, it does. It, it, like a lollipop kind of thing. And it is very comfortable to wear. I, I 
I have to test all these stimulation strategies. So I, I basically walk around with that and it, I forget it's in my mouth. Um, but yeah, it, it has a cable that's connected to a controller. And then there's headphones that are running a Bluetooth interface. But that tone simulation is then paired with the um, a tongue stimulation location. And there's also some background um, structured noise. It sounds a bit like electronic music that moves, you know, with the tones, right? The, the chief uh, engineer uh, is a DJ, musical DJ. So he may just, it, it's a, we have some clips, but you know, it's a musical masterpiece. It, it, it really is. And so you, you listen to this and, and it happens and then it switches to another tone. Uh, the background noise is continuous, but it's just another tone and then another location on your tongue. And this repeats over and over again for 30 minutes, right? So, um, and the, then you could do it two times per day if you like. So that's the first setting. The second setting then, going back to the hypotheses that I brought up, is, okay, um, maybe then let's let's switch, let's increase the delays between the tongue and uh, tone stimulation. And that was around, you know, tens of millisecond delays. So that this we, is the second group you're talking about, right? When you talk about second setting. So this is the first group is basically where everything is synchronized between yes. the tongue stimulation and the and the sounds. And now you're going to change the gap between the tongue stimulation and the sounds in the second and the third groups. Exactly. And that delay happens about tens of milliseconds. That's delayed for the tongue uh, to tone. And then also we jumbled up the mapping. It was randomized to the tongue. So different frequencies are going to different locations on the tongue. Uh, and then, of course, the third group setting was even moving more in that direction. Now we did hundreds of milliseconds delays. And we even moved the frequencies from high frequencies or from 500 to 8 kilohertz down to 100 to 500 hertz. And so that that was, you know, tried to create some uh, contrasting differences. And those were the three stimulation settings. And the reason why we did that is that the device was already CE marked and it was sold for some time um, uh, before this large-scale clinical trials were performed. And the stimuli have to be presented at super threshold levels. So it was, you know, you got to think of blinding, you know, the different groups for a good clinical trial design. And so trying to just do headphones or trying to do, you know, um, tongue stimulation or, you know, some other parameters, um, although it's possible, you have to be very creative in how you, you know, blind these studies. And so for this study, since it was a parameter optimization study, uh, the, the idea behind it was, you know, try these three bundles a bimodal stem and then see what happens. So that was that was the design there. Um, and then uh, 12 weeks of treatment was the idea. And then they basically give the device back. And really, the, the amazing thing about the study, in my opinion, is the, the tracking the patients for 12 months, you know, 326 people enrolled, but then tracking them for 12 months. Uh, whoever you know came back um, post treatment to see how they're doing. So what what's the durability of effect? I mean, how how so if I have tinnitus and I'm using your device, how frequently do I have to use it? Yeah, so that was where um, in the past they they recommended at least 10, 10 weeks. Um, but in our study in the clinical trial, we designed it so that they would get twelve weeks of treatment, and we recommended one hour per day. Uh, a minimum of 36 hours over 12 weeks. So that's about three hours per week. That was the pre-specified uh, criterion. Um, and what we're seeing is that they had significant, as, as Arun mentioned earlier, you know, uh, I have some numbers here, but basically if you look at our outcome measures, which we use tinnitus questionnaires, um, people ask why we use those and not some measure of tinnitus loudness. First, there is no objective measure of tinnitus loudness. 
And although you could eliminate tinnitus and people will feel better, a reduction in tinnitus loudness doesn't necessarily mean they're going to feel better. So we use questionnaires that are well used in the tinnitus field to assess their reaction and bothersome and quality of life, you know, to tinnitus. Um, and these two questionnaires uh, are called tinnitus handicap inventory and tinnitus functional index. So these two questionnaires we tracked and during treatment, we saw significant reduction uh, in, in uh, those two measures um, in, in just rough, you know, percentages, you know, 80 plus percentage of people had that decrease of some, you know, score in, in those questionnaires. Now, this is where when we stopped the treatment, we then had of all the people that we were able to track and come back at the last visit 12 months later, that was 151 individuals, right, that came back um, uh, that we were able to track. Uh, Basically eight, half of them. About half of them, yeah. 80% yeah. of them um, had uh, their tinnitus improved, um, you know, with the scores reduced out to 12 months, right? So that to me, I, I was shocked with so that. So basically a 12-week treatment regimen in these patients was able to prevent uh, or substantially improve the tinnitus symptoms uh, by uh, by almost 80% at, 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 at the 12-month stage, uh, at the one-year follow-up. That's correct. Uh, and, and that's the part and there that, was no treatment that was given between month three, which is after the at the end of the treatment protocol, which is which is at the end of three months or 12 weeks and the remaining nine months until the end of the 12 month period. Correct. Exactly. Our treatment had stopped. Now, they could have been doing other things in their lives. So we can't control that. So there is some you know variability. In, and, you know, of course, in the paper, we just provide all the data points of each individual person so people can see, you know, their scores and so forth. Um, but but that, that was the encouraging part. And, you know, the question that a lot of people ask is, well, what do these tinnitus questionnaire scores mean? Because we're just showing improvements in those scores. You know, how do you know it's actually improving their daily life? Um, we show significance and so forth. So at the end of the study, we also just ask them, you know, how are you feeling? Right. Do you feel that you benefited from this treatment? And we had um, at, at the end of treatment, 272 people right out of the 326 uh, did the questionnaire exit interview. Sorry. Uh, and their 66.5 percent said they benefited. Right. And 77.8 percent out of 272 people said yes, that they would recommend it to someone. So that means some people didn't even benefit, but they're felt like it, it's something to be able to recommend, right? So that to me, you know, these questionnaires, you have to be careful about what these scores mean, right? How much is a clinically meaningful difference? Um, but I think that mixed in with the 12-month sustained effect, plus two-thirds saying that they benefited with these large numbers. Um, I'm not saying it's a perfect study, but, uh, I, I, you know, I feel that we, we've done something there. And there's... Absolutely. But yeah. with, with, with ambiguous concepts like pain and tinnitus there I think it's hard for people to recognize that it's not a cure isn't right there and that improvement is for these people oftentimes sufficient to to make them feel better and feel obviously less pain but in the case of tinnitus less agitated less um, impaired by what's happening every day and I, I think we all want to strive We're like, well, it's not perfect. Well, it doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be better. And I, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, it's, it seems like with a two thirds positive response rate, there's going to be some pushback saying, ah, oh, this can't be, this can't be. I mean, that's got to be frustrating too. 
Yeah, and, and we are seeing that. I mean, and, and rightly so, I, in terms of people being able to express their concerns. You know, of course, they want to make sure the data um, is is highly rigorous and and is validated. And you know, there's a lot of people suffering from tinnitus, uh, and so I, I get it too. I mean, we we need to be as, as scientists and clinicians and researchers. We we need to be cautious because we don't want to give false hope. Um, and, and so we, we basically, for our paper, we had some great advisors um, and um, uh, experts who helped guide us in this in this study and in reporting it. We decided we're just going to put all the data up there. And we had something like 20 plus <laughs> extra plots um, at every point for the individuals. You know, they could see the scores. They could see what happened. We put it put these um, exit interviews of how they benefited and so forth. And so I, I hope people can see that, you know, something is happening there now. I will say one of the limitations is that we were hoping we, we had two primary endpoints, right? One and pre-specified one was that um, we'd have significant within arm improvements and we hit that check mark there. Um, the other primary endpoint co-primary endpoint was that we would see between arm differences, right? Particularly between arm one and arm three. Those were the most orthogonal parameters. And so we had, you know, it was kind of, it's kind of like an active control design base, a dosage. You can think of it like a dosage response, right? In the drug world. Um, we did not see that between arm difference, right? So that that was the part where we said, okay, you know, of course, and, and that's where a lot of attention is right now in the scientific community because the question then becomes, you know, oh, is this just a placebo effect? You know, is this uh, uh, are the patients really benefiting? Is it really helping them? Um, and and I think we have to kind of separate that out a bit, right? Um, it's not that it's not helping them; it is helping them because we ask them and we track them and we know they're doing better. Right. The question really is not, is it a placebo effect? Is it real? Is it you know working? Is it something that we should be proud of? I, I think, yes, we should be proud of it. It's helping. The question is, what is contributing right to that therapeutic effect? And then if it is certain features, could you still achieve it by just doing one or some of those components? Or do you need the full thing that we have? And the fact that there's been so many studies out there that have tried to do, you know, acupuncture, you know, somatosensory stimulation alone, acoustic maskers, acoustic inputs, cognitive behavioral therapy, and the data that we have, you know, I, I would, you know, urge people who are looking at our data and, you know, doubting it to find other data that's tracked out to 12 months post-treatment um, and see on a large scale if they've seen comparable types of results. Um, and, and I think that's where you need to compare it to. And so whether or not it is placebo, whether or not it's one or the other, the question is, if you can only do it with this combination of components, what, even if it's placebo effect, <laughs> if it is. And, 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 I, and I really want to kind of commend you and, and the group uh, here for actually putting out all the data out, because I think it's very, very informative. I think having read the paper a couple of times, I think it's definitely very, very clear that 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 the data is there for people to see and for people to unpick, et cetera. So I think, I think that is, that is a fantastic um, kind of depiction of how to actually publish a clinical study as well, uh, Hubert. So, so thank you for doing that for the field and, and also uh, for the field of tinnitus and to help patients. So can we actually move on to the other interesting part that you're actually doing in the lab, uh, which is, the use of focus ultrasound, uh, which is one of the ways that I actually got to know you uh, when we first started talking a couple of years ago. Um, in terms of how that came out, 
came about and where you're taking that focus ultrasound piece because you're taking you're not taking that in a neurological condition you're taking that in a completely different uh, indication so do you want to share a bit more about that so that sure. you know about yeah that facet of yours yeah and this is going to show more that uh um maybe i'm not a good scientist but i just try a lot of things and things just happen to fall in place Maybe, maybe Jojo, you met, said hard work. So maybe it was the hard work. Enough shots and goal. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I didn't, so there are other people working on ultrasound of the body, um, and the brain. And, um, I wanted to use it for tinnitus treatment. So I wanted to use ultrasound of the auditory cortex and that was my intention. Um, so I, you know, got access to some ultrasound transducers and partnered up with some collaborators here at, at Minnesota. Uh, and this was, geez, when was that? 2014 time, 13 time. And there was so many amazing papers coming out, right, uh, on this topic, at least for brain stimulation. Uh, peripheral nerve uh, started to come out a little bit later. And there was also, um, you know, studies from 30, 40 years ago, you know, doing ultrasound of the body and the brain. Uh, so I, I thought this is no biggie. I mean, people are showing wonderful results. So I'm going to apply it to the auditory cortex and try to modulate non-invasively uh, potentially for tinnitus treatment. So I got animals, guinea pigs, and what we use in my lab. And I placed the ultrasound transducer over the auditory cortex. And I had electrodes recording from the auditory cortex. And we got amazing data. I mean, it was a lot of activity. So we were super excited and I'm like, oh, this really works. The problem was, was that my student, uh, students um, would move the transducer around by an accident, but also purposely. And we still got the same response. We put the ultrasound on the visual cortex and the auditory cortex still looks great. We put the ultrasound on the somatosensory cortex, the auditory cortex activity looks great. I said, put it on the eyeball. You know, what happens if you put the ultrasound transducer on the eyeball? Still wonderful auditory cortex activity. And I was like, oh, how is it? Okay, take the ultrasound transducer off the animal's body. And it didn't happen. So, okay, so it has to be coupled to the animal's body. So then I said, put it on the body then. Put it on the neck. Put it on the leg. And still amazing auditory cortex activity, right? So we did so many control experiments. And I remember being at Hanover Medical University with, you know, Thomas Leonard's when I was doing, Dr. Thomas Leonard's when I was doing my auditory prosthetic work. They had done bone anchor hearing aids. And uh, they were telling me about, you know, how they would basically have to drill out the bone, the screw that goes on the skull that's vibrating to for the hearing uh, device. Um, but they would still could vibrate the dura. And you can actually vibrate the dura and cause hearing sensations. You can also, I wouldn't recommend it because maybe at a party, but you could basically put a transducer on your eyeball and put it on people's eyeballs and they could listen to music that way or sounds, right? It's not really the way you want to do it, but. I thought I was weirder, Hubert, but you actually have taken the record from me. So, no this this sounds like something almost like what we did at a bar with Phil one night in Minnesota, the three of us. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised with Phil. He, oh yeah, that's right. It was with us. I remember. Um, so this made me think we are actually vibrating the cerebrospinal fluid, and um, that in turn then is vibrating the cochlear fluids. Because the cochlear fluids are connected to, people don't know this, but it's actually all continuous. Your brain fluids flow into the cochlea, um, and it's a CSF there. And you could basically vibrate then the cerebrospinal fluid, the cochlear fluids, and then activate the auditory system. 
So this was the hypothesis. We went in and we basically cut the auditory nerves. And when we did that, all our auditory cortex disappeared. Interestingly, we still had some somatosensory activity, but then we removed the skin and the bone and went directly on the brain for control experiments and all that activity went away. So it showed that there was a lot of confounding factors. It could be tactile of the ultrasound on the skin, on the bone vibrations. It could be, um, you know, on going through the cochlear pathway. And so we did a lot of experiments trying to figure that out. And till now, I still haven't been able to get excitation in the brain with ultrasound. And because of that, I it partly uh, through that process, I decided to move away from the brain um, and try to stimulate more peripheral nerves and, and organs. That's where I thought, okay, maybe that's a better direction. And so that actually ended up how I um, uh, entered the spleen or an organ uh, ultrasound modulation world. Um, one, one other piece uh, there was that Medtronic, uh, there was a, a scientist, a really great scientist, there, Dr. Jamu Alford, uh, who who um, used to be at Medtronic and now at Colonel, um, he and I had been talking and meeting at meetings. And so he he helped, we worked together on that ultrasound um, auditory cortex experiments. Uh, and that led us to say, okay, well, let's, you know, think about end organ spleen stimulation. And, and that's how I ended up moving into that realm there. But maybe I'll pause, I, a, lot, a lot of information there while I take a water break. It's all good stuff. I And, and it's always... You have such a great, a great way of conveying information that's accessible. So even though I'm not one of your students, I'm not a, you know, a graduate of anybody's lab, you make it accessible and, and I can understand the work that you're doing. And I appreciate that, that part of what you do. Great. Thank you. I'll, so, I'll rate you highly on rate my professor. <laughs> so, so, so where, where are you actually taking the ultrasound work now, uh, Hubert? Um, in terms of, I think you've you've shown it in the animal models, and I think you are trying to show that in the human studies at this point of time. Is that right? Yeah, and and that's where we, you know, when I moved towards um, spleen stimulation, uh, we were fortunate because uh, at that time, uh, Dr. Doug Weber, which all of us know, super amazing person. Uh, I did a dance routine for him, by the way. <laughs> we could talk about that later. We made a video called Mobile Walkies. Uh, off of Jabberwockies. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Um, he he initiated, of course, Electric's program, and we initiated that. And then Dr. Uh, Dr. Eric Van Giesen, who's also been awesome, I've been working with him, uh, to, uh, took over that program. Uh, and through that, we just collected so much data. We stimulated uh, peripheral nerves um, and also um, and organs. We found that you could suppress peripheral nerves but not excite them, um, and you could uh, modulate uh, and organs, uh, the spleen, uh, and through that, we were able to measure, you know, cytokines and other outputs like inflammation uh, in mice. Uh, so a lot of that experiments was done, um, you know, trying to figure out if we could suppress the immune response, the inflammation, which Arun, you're very familiar with because of, uh, you know, Dr. Kevin Tracy's work and GSK's interest in, in all of that as well and Gabani. Uh, but we basically showed that you could stimulate in a chronic or well, semi-chronic it's a, it's a mouse inflammatory arthritis model that you could apply ultrasound for seven days eight days um, to the spleen and significantly reduce inflammation arthritis in these mice uh, that was I, I don't know it seemed like magic at first <laughs> you know you're kind of like how does this work you're talking about fetal imaging 
you know, ultrasound imaging, and then suddenly magically you could reduce inflammation. Uh, Eric uh, was working with um, GE on a separate project, and that was all kind of under the radar. Uh, so he and, and Gretchen and Tyler Best, they connected us together at a DARPA meeting. Uh, and that's when we found out that GE was doing similar experiments. And so we compared notes and it was like, wait a minute, we found this parameter to be more effective. And they said, oh, we found that to be more effective too. They were using a LPS acute inflammation model. Uh, and so then when we looked at it, we found similar parameters were being effective. And that's when I talked to Chris and Chris Puglia, who's leading the efforts there. And I said, we got to publish jointly because people aren't going to believe that ultrasound just suddenly magically works. I actually remember but, that because I think it was almost the same journal, back to back articles uh, yeah. in, in Nature Comms, if I'm correct, exactly. where you published it. So, yeah. Uh, so we, we convinced the editor to put in the same, you know, the same issue back to back. And uh, we wanted to publish it together. And we thought that would send a stronger message that something is definitely going on here for immune. Um, and then, of course, DARPA then was super supportive. And they enabled you know, GE to run some human studies uh, and uh, us to run a, a clinical trial on rheumatoid arthritis patients. Uh, that then um, you know, allowed us to collect quite a bit of data uh, in doing splenic ultrasound in um, uh, our rheumatoid arthritis patients. Uh, Chris Puglio with uh, Kevin Tracy and Feinstein were stimulating in healthy subjects where they would stimulate the spleen and then take the blood and do ex vivo prep with LPS um, to show uh, a reduction in inflammation. Um, what was interesting was then COVID hit. And that was, uh, you know, a surprise to all of us and, and how devastating it has been. Um, but we were, we decided, you know, our clinical trial isn't done yet, our, our, our rheumatoid arthritis study. Um, but we decided not our primary endpoints, but we took out some RNA-seq data that we have um, that uh, was more exploratory. And we analyzed that data because we saw RNA-seq data coming out in COVID patients um, where they're showing that certain um, cytokines, uh, blood markers like uh, IL-6, IL-1B, um, TNF, and, and um, uh, other markers uh, were being upregulated or being increased. And so we, and related to the cytokine storm that you hear about, and that's what's leading to these severe symptoms. So we actually took our data out and uh, looked to see, are we seeing similar types of, you know, reduction or, or the opposite reduction in those, those biomarkers, right? And when we looked at our RNA-seq data, we did, we found that if you look at the ones we're suppressing, they were the counter, they're matching opposite direction to what was going up in COVID patients. And at the time, then GE said, okay, we have some data <laughs> in healthy subjects showing that they could reduce TNF, uh, TNF uh, down with splenic ultrasound. So we then decided again to team up to do this joint paper that uh, is currently in review, but we have it uh, on uh, MedArchive that, that is publicly available. So that, uh, you know, all to lead to where we are taking this now, right? We're still interested in rheumatoid arthritis, and that's, that's a direction that the company I'm involved with. Uh, second wave systems with uh, Anuj Bardwaj that you met uh, before Arun over a call about a year or two ago. Um, we're still going in that direction, but what has really caught our attention uh, is to use our ultrasound stimulation uh, to treat COVID, uh, severe symptoms, the cytokine storm. And so we've been fortunate. We received a grant uh, from uh, MCDC. Uh, I always forget what all those acronyms, JP uh, Seaburn, which I forgot what that stands for too. Sorry, uh, did you say ACDC or MCDC? MCDC. MCDC. 
Oh, ACDC. That's right. We got it from ACDC. Uh, and JPO Seaburn is the other one. This is not Maryland Development Corp. This is a through DARPA, DARPA uh, or sorry, through Department of Defense. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are these medical like device consortium. If I get it, I'm, I should know this. Okay. They're going to tell me. Why didn't you say correctly? Uh, <laughs> I'll check with Eric. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they funded uh, second wave systems to run uh, some COVID study. Uh, Minnesota and uh, UC San Diego is the other site. And then uh, DARPA, Eric Van Giesen, uh, are funding us, uh, GE and, and, and Minnesota, to run our other uh, COVID clinical trial here. So that's where we're, we're moving you know, in the short term to try to help with the pandemic. Uh, and, and that's kind of the direction we're at short term, you know, and if things go well, of course, it opens up opportunities in the acute inflammation space. Sure. So is, is, uh, is second wave looking for investment right now? Oh, we're always looking for, uh, investment. <laughs> uh, Just thought I'd throw that out there. Cause I know Eric's interested in helping you guys get to a translational, you know, bridging that valley of death. Yeah, we, we were participated, uh, you know, at, at the Neurotech, uh, which is great. And uh, I talked to Eric actually just the other day uh, in finding ways that we could, you know, kind of fuse more interactions um, with investors and in the industry side um, uh, with with uh, startups like us. I think that'd be super helpful. All right. So we'll, we'll put your um, we'll make ourselves available to make connections for people looking to invest in second wave. You can contact Arun or me directly through the website. We'll get you in touch with Hubert. We'll be your filter for a small (laughs) fee, of course. (laughs) So is there anything, anything else that you're into? You have such a plethora of, of projects and a wide portfolio of work. Is there anything that we've missed? Well, I don't want to go on for another hour here. Um, you know, I, I do want to give a you know shout out, I guess, um, because I, my other project, um, we were fortunate. Uh, NIH Brain Initiative is funding this auditory nerve implant. So I, I told you way back at the start of this, my real initial project was an auditory nerve implant that then kind of branched off to a brain implant for hearing restoration. Uh, I, I was able to team up um, with Florian Sashbacher from BlackRock, uh, as you know. Uh, a company, Medel, uh, which is a, another leading cochlear implant company, uh, and my, you know, postdoc mentor Thomas Leonard's and uh, um, um, so, uh, Amir Sami again from Hanover. So we we have a team going on. Uh, actually, Lauren Reith is part of that. Feinstein, you know, <laughs> give credit there. Uh, so we're we're a, we're a team here, and um, now we're going to be pushing that forward with technology development, preclinical studies, and then uh, goal to implant three patients. So I, I will say that that has been a fun effort that I've been working with them. And then the other thing, uh, this ultrasound, which was an accident, uh, you know, activating the auditory system, uh, we're now developing a, a hearing device. So hopefully at a place near you, you'll be able to not have to have headphones in your ears. You just put an ultrasound device on your neck or your eyeball and you can listen to your music. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm going to be doing that. And that's my eyeballs are strictly off limits. I have hard limits there, Hubert. Sorry. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. You guys, you're doing some amazing work, some really exciting stuff. I, you know, if ultrasound is an accident, my mom said I was an accident and I turned out okay. So <laughs> I, I think you're in good, in good company. And thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jojo. Thank you, Rune. Yep. You're welcome, Hubert. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Our sound editor is Sainthan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dad. You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Yeah.